Hello, Oldest Stories listeners. This episode was originally episode 11. However, when I first made this show, I had my chronologies all confused. The material covered here comes after the fall of the Akkadian Empire, in the Earth-3 period, and so it has subsequently been moved from where it originally appeared in the show listing. The content is still valid, though as an early effort at history, it is a bit unfocused in places. Still, I hope you enjoy the show. These are the oldest stories, online at oldeststories.net. Philosophy was invented by Thales of Miletus around 600 BCE when he declared that all things are water. But of course, people have been pondering the nature of life, the universe, and everything even well before that, though we don't get to call it philosophy until the Greeks get involved for some reason. There have been wise men as long as there have been men, and probably foolish men even earlier than that. And so it is in Mesopotamia that as soon as things came to be written down, people are writing down their very cleverest thoughts. Not all of them are very clever, but it's the cleverest they can do. And while these thoughts might not have had the same depth or variety as philosophy would later come to have, they do touch on a wide variety of subjects and take a wide variety of compositional forms. We have poems, debates, proverbs, humorous anecdotes, and even direct expounding of principles with regard to questions as direct as how should one live life and as esoteric as which is better, birds or fish? We even have a bitter old man complaining about kids these days, demonstrating that the younger generation has been complained about for as long as humanity has had younger generations. Perhaps the most notable form of wisdom literature is the genre called instructions. These have their roots in the seemingly universal desire for all old people to preserve their wisdom for future generations. And in fact, they're often found in the tombs of the presumed authors of these instructions, which I like to think means that no one's ever read them. They just let Grandpa write out what he wanted and then buried his dumb ideas with him. Although, almost certainly, they were at least read out during the funeral and likely read in other contexts. Perhaps the earliest example that we have of this are the Instructions of Shurapag. It is actually surprisingly long and well-preserved. Old Shurapag doesn't limit himself to a catchy proverb or two, but really lays it on, providing suggestions for all of life, from love to money to ethics to the purpose of life itself. While this list is written by one Mr. Shurapag, specifically for his son Ziadsura, both of whom bear the names of mythic figures, so they either took the names in the way that we take biblical names today, or they're meant to be speaking as said mythic figures, it's generally taken that these principles represent best practices as envisioned by the society as a whole, and it tells us about what Sumerians valued and thought best. His very first line of advice is sadly garbled, but the first readable thing he tells us is that you should not locate your field on a road, nor put a water well near your field, nor put your house near a public square, since the traffic will trample your crops and be too noisy. Do not hang around when a fight is breaking out. You don't want to be a witness, you don't want to get involved, and you certainly don't want to cause the fight. Instead, stand aside and take another road. 
Never steal things. Don't even covet money chests. A thief is a lion, but when he is caught, he becomes a slave. The first part of this aphorism is obviously metaphorical, but the latter part is a very literal possibility. Do not play around with a married woman. The slander could be serious. Don't even sit alone in a chamber with a married woman. Now, women are nearly invisible in Sumerian records, but from what I can tell, things were pretty bleak for them. Women married young and were meant to be virgin. The wedding was a purchase, with the marriage contracts looking quite like the purchase contracts for a house or livestock, where the husband paid the father in return for near-total possession of the wife, who did have it better than a slave, though officially not always by much, and her lot in life really seems to have been almost completely dependent on how kind or cruel her husband wanted to be. Like any society, most family units were bound by some degree of love and warmth, but if it wasn't there, there was very little the woman could do to escape. Shurapak, in any case, is no great progressive in these matters, insisting on separation between the sexes within his own home, saying in the same document, You tell your son to come to your home, but you tell your daughter to go to her women's quarters. He tells us not to speak improperly, because you'll lay a trap for yourself later on. The truth, after all, is easier to keep in order than a web of lies. Do not scatter your sheep in unknown pastures. Do not hire an ox for an uncertain trip. A safe road makes for safe journey. And never travel by night, for it can hide the good you do and the evil others do. Do not have sex with your slave girls, he advises, since they will bite you. This seems to be an idiosyncratic view since other documents attest to slave girls being used in other places. Another one that, while valid, appears to be particular to his situation, which is, do not establish a home with an arrogant man. He will make your life like that of a slave girl, and you won't even be able to travel through your dwelling without being shouted at all the time. More universal is his instruction to not use violence and never commit rape. But like many of the moral injunctions, the worry is that the courtyard, that is the society around you, will learn of your misdeeds and that there will be societal punishments. The idea that these things are simply wrong is not present here, and not present generally in Sumerian society. Rather, it's that what we would call immoral acts are likely to have negative outcomes for the committer. Don't curse strongly, for it will rebound unto you. Do not boast in beer halls, otherwise your word won't be trusted. And my favorite instruction, having reached the field of manhood, you should not jump with your hand. Almost certainly this is some sort of turn of phrase we have no translation for, but I rather like the image of Bronze Age acrobats doing handstands while old Shurapak shakes his head in disapproval. Mmm, th those hand jumpers. Rah. He gives two more sets of instructions with some overlap, though his second set focuses less on practical issues and more on societal ones, to the extent that this whole thing is organized at all. The palace, he says, is like a mighty river. Its middle are goring bulls. What flows in is never enough to fill it, and what flows out can never be stopped. 
and the rapacious machine of government both consumes and destroys in equal or probably greater measure in our own time. When it is about someone else's bread, it is easy to say, I will give it to you. But the time of actual giving can be as far away as the sky. If you go after the man who said, I will give it to you, he'll say, oh, I can't give it to you. The bread has just been finished up. This is why I have stopped watching politics. Property, he says, is good to have more of, but nothing is better than my children. What a nice sentiment. The strong can always escape from anyone's hand, while the weak are seized by fate. In what sounds like direct experience, he says, if you hire a worker, he'll eat your bread with you, and when you finish up the bread, he'll quit right there and say, oh, I have to live on something, and then he'll go get a job at the palace. Sounds like something that may have happened to old Shurapak directly. We do get a few bits of timeless advice, then. Do not pass judgment when you drink beer. Do not worry unduly about what leaves the house. And at the harvest time, you should work like a slave girl and eat like a queen. The last section is more focused on family and begins with advice on purchasing slaves. Do not buy a prostitute or you will be bitten. Do not buy a houseborn slave. He will sicken the household. Do not buy a free man selling himself into slavery because he'll always lean against the wall. Do not buy a palace slave girl. They only sell the worst and keep the best for themselves. Rather, bring a foreign slave down from the mountains. He will be loyal and hardworking because he has nowhere else to go and no one else to rely on. And when you bring a slave girl from the hills, she brings good in her hands but evil in her heart and cannot let go of one without the other. I'm not sure how much value advice on slave purchasing has in the modern day, but it is interesting to look at the perspective of people back when slave purchasing was a going concern. As for yourself, you won't get any work done with just your eyes, and you won't get rich with just words. The negligent one ruins his family, which is advice people I've worked with could certainly stand to hear more often. And Shurupak would have his son assume his natural station and work within the city's power structure, saying, By grasping the neck of a huge ox, you can cross the river. Likewise, by moving at the side of mighty men in the city, you will certainly ascend, politically speaking. To have authority and possessions and steadfast character are divine powers, and so you should also submit to the respected and be humble before the powerful. On household management, he has mixed advice, saying first that a loving heart maintains a family, but a hateful heart destroys a family. Sound wisdom there. He then tells us not to choose a wife during a festival, because she's on her best behavior then and probably borrowed all of her nice clothes. Rather, one selects a reliable woman for a good household, and always remember that a woman with her own property ruins the house. But you can't be too misogynistic, because the wet nurses in the women's quarters determine the fate of their lord. And you should not speak arrogantly to her mother, because this causes hatred for you. And probably my own mother's favorite line in here is, you should not question the words of your mother 
your personal God. The Father, too, is like a God, and his instructions should be complied with, says the Father writing out instructions. And to finish his list with a truly timeless gem, he says, Nothing at all is to be valued, but life should be sweet. You should not serve things. Things should serve you. Overall, I think we can hardly count Shurapek as one of the great philosophers, even if he does seem to be among the first whose work still survives. But I think this establishes the genre for us as worthy of reading through, since nearly every line reveals either a good deal about how these people thought and lived, or is generally good advice even today, or sometimes even both. That last line in particular seems to preempt Buddhism by a good 2,000 years, depending on how you date both this tablet, maybe around 2,500 BCE, and the Buddha himself, whose dates I've seen around 500 BCE. But instructions were a popular literary form, not just among aged wise men like Shurapak. We have much less philosophical instructions from the farmer, which tells us in great and fascinating detail how to farm barley, nearly an instruction manual. First, you test your canals and flood your field, though not too high, and make sure the fence will keep out the cattle. Then level the field, having taken note as to where the field dried when the water stood, to get a sense of the peaks and valleys of the area, and sweep it all clean. All your tools should be ready for work before you start, and he lists particular points of wear to check beforehand, like the handle of your whip and the sides of your basket, and of course the straps that hold everything together. Every ox should have a backup ox waiting to relieve it, and every plow should have a backup as well. A plow should last about 180 iku, or maybe 65 hectares, before needing repair. So it's best to size your fields at about 144 iku, or 52 hectares, to make everything pleasant. There are three types of plow that should each be used in sequence, and any stubborn spots should be hammered flat with a maul, making sure that the handle is securely attached before use. A brief exhortation comes here, the only generally applicable advice in the piece. The old farmer says, When your field work becomes excessive, you should not neglect your work. No one should have to tell anyone else, Do your field work! When the constellations are in the sky, do not be reluctant to take the oxen to the field as many times as needed, and let your hoe do all your work for you. He then picks up with how to properly adjust your cedar plow, insisting that you make eight furrows per ninden, or about six meters, since the barley will lodge in more closely spaced furrows. Whoever drops the seeds should be careful that they fall two fingers deep into the ground and that you should use one gig of seed per ninden, or about three milliliters of seed per meter. If the seed does not drop clean into the furrow, adjust the wedge angle of your plow, and each year alternate between vertical and slanted furrows, straighten out any crooked rows, picking out the clods. Then, when the seedlings pop out of the ground, perform the holy rituals against mice and locusts. When the plants fill out the furrow, water them, and again when they look like a reed mat, and again when they're at full height, reaching their head. When the plants fully leaf out, do not water them, 
in case they get leaf rust. But then, right when it's time for husking, you can water them and this will give you a 10% yield increase. When it's time to harvest, do not delay. The harvest takes three men, one to cut, one to tie, and one to collect the sheaves. During harvest time, begin each day at sunrise, and even though all your grain is stale from last year, do not eat the new grain until it's been properly prepared. The old farmer then gives instructions on threshing and winnowing the grain to get the seeds off the plant, saying particularly that when you winnow, get an intelligent person as your second winnower. Why? I don't know. I'm not even really sure what winnowing is. Then when your grain is clean and ready, spend the evening and night performing rites to the gods, particularly Ninurta the farming god and Enlil the king of the gods. And with this, I've learned more from a 4,000-year-old tablet about farming than I have in my entire life. I rather wonder if I could use these instructions as written, with nothing else but my general ignorance, to harvest a barley field. It certainly seems like a good fun project in the abstract, maybe a good thing to stick on YouTube, but also it seems like way too much work, and I don't really know if barley would even grow on my dry, alkaline... Texas soil. In any case, this more practical advice was probably way more valuable back then than the rambling grumbles of old wise men like old Shurapak, but it is less fun for a modern non-farmer, non-historian. So we'll look at what was probably my favorite of the instruction texts, this one presented as a dialogue rather than the disembodied words of an old or presumably dead speaker. It begins with an older scribe and supervisor saying, Young scribe, come here and let me explain to you what my teacher revealed. Like you, I was once a youth and had a mentor. My teacher would assign tasks to me and, like a springing reed, I would jump to it. I did not depart from my teacher's instructions and certainly did not do things on my own initiative. And so my mentor was delighted with my work. He rejoiced in my humility, and he spoke in my favor to others. I just did whatever he outlined, because only a fool would have deviated from his instructions. He guided me on the lines of the clay, and he guided me on a straight path in life, making me eloquent and giving me advice. He focused my eyes on this rule, saying, Zeal is proper for every task. Time-wasting is forbidden. He was knowledgeable, but never boasted about it, since people would frown at that. But like he taught, do not waste time, don't even sleep at night, and most of all, never reject the pleasurable company of your supervisor and mentor, since this will make you far more worthy. And when things don't go your way, just calm yourself and accept that this is the plan of the gods. These are the things my mentor taught me, and you should not neglect them. You should pay attention to what I say. This is all worthwhile advice to be sure, but my favorite part of this is that it isn't an uncontested recital like the previous ones. Since having heard this, the younger scribe now speaks, saying, I shall give you a response to what you have recited like a magic spell. Do you think I'm ignorant? Why do you go on and on about the rules as if I were a shirker? 
anyone hearing your words would be insulted. You have taught me of the scribal art, but that all has been well repaid to you. You put me in charge of your household, and I have never shirked my duty. I manage the slaves and subordinates, keeping them rationed and on task so that you don't have to. I do this as soon as I wake up and chivy them around like little sheep. I performed all the offerings to all of your gods on the appropriate days, taking care to keep the offerings attractive. I've managed the fields during harvest, working day and night without rest, and even increased the quality of your fields so that now your neighbors admire you. Since my childhood, you've scrutinized me and inspected my behavior like fine silver, and there's just no limit to it. Without speaking grandly, since that's your shortcoming, I serve. But those who undervalue themselves are ignored by you, and you should know this. Which is, as far as I'm concerned, absolutely wonderful. There are times when I was younger that I wished I could have had the balls to retort like this to one of the self-styled sages trying to improve me. And lately I've even found with some of my younger co-workers that I'm starting to speak like the old scribe. Maybe as I get even older I'll probably get even more preachy since that seems to be the natural cycle of life. Or Maybe I'll be able to keep this ancient tale in mind and moderate myself, at least a little bit. But we do have time for one more to round out our look at instructions literature. And this shows yet another way the genre can be employed. Is it practical advice like the farmer's instructions? Is it humorously subversive like the scholar's debate? Is it meant as a cautionary tale, sort of an inverse of old Shurapak's advice? But going back and forth on how I interpret this one, possibly all three. And so with this, the dialogue of the customer and his fuller, I'll do a little less summary here. Read it more straight and let you decide. Come, fuller, let me instruct you how to treat my garment. Do not ignore what I tell you, and definitely don't follow your own ideas. On the hem, lay down the selvage, stitch the outside to the inside, and pick up the thread of the shorter border. Then soak the delicate part of the cloth in beer, strain it through a sieve to loosen the hem with the new selvage, then spray it with clear water and wipe it down with cloth. I want you to brush the cloth along the weft so that the warp of the fabric is straight and even. Then rinse in a basin with alkaline gypsum soap. And while you have it in the basin, beat the cloth with the stone vigorously. When you take it out, I want you to repeatedly comb the fabric, then tap it gently with a wooden stick to smooth the fabric. Then arrange the fringe on a washer's stool and repair all the work with a needle. Next, spread and flatten the hem, then dry it right after sunset so that it will dry slowly and hopefully not wrinkle. Then place the cloth in a box and then that box in a chest and it had better be smooth. Bring it to my house and if it is good, I will make you happy. I will pour one saya, I don't know how much a saya is, of barley as payment. The fuller answers, by 
Aya, Lord of Wisdom who keeps me alive. Only my creditor and tax collector have the nerve to talk like you. Nobody's hands could manage this work. What you've instructed me, I, I couldn't even repeat it. Here, come with me to the upstream of the city, and I will show you a washing place. There, you can do the great work you've laid out here. Surely it won't take much longer than lunchtime for you to do it all, to unravel these many threads. If you don't calm yourself down here, there will be no fuller in the city that's going to bother with you. You will be mocked and ostracized and shamed and get heartburn and a rash from all the stress of being an arrogant fool. Clearly, the customer is always right, hadn't been invented yet, and thank the gods for that. Humor with a serious point for sure. It shows us that the people of the Bronze Age were, for better or worse, basically the same people as we are today. And for sure, how much of this wisdom literature is still valuable? Every one of these works has something that we could take away nowadays. Old Ban Shurapak may have had a Bronze Age outlook on women and slaves, but he understood that you had to have your priorities straight in life, and gives perfectly valid secular reasons to avoid danger and evil actions, since they'll likely come back and bite you. The farmer's methods may be outdated nowadays, but his belief that no man should have to tell anyone to get to work, that everyone should just attend their duty, is something we should aspire to more. The two scribes may have been bickering, but neither were really wrong, with both saying that people should work hard, and from a meta-perspective, maybe the old can respect the virtues of the young while the young appreciate the knowledge of the old. And the customer in the last piece serves as a fine example of how not to talk to people, but to be calm and reasonable in your requests from others. I have enjoyed doing first the letters and now the wisdom literature, so expect these to continue from time to time. But next week, we will head back to the realm of myth as we round out our survey of the great gods, the Anunnaki. So join me next time as we look at the King of Gods, Lord of Wind Enlil, and ask ourselves if he has anything better to do than harass women. Thank you for listening.